Welcome to Global Adventist Conversations, produced by Spectrum Magazine. I'm Alexander Carpenter, the executive editor and director, and I'm honored to be joined by Adventists from around the world. We're going to be talking about the General Conference session, and we'll be talking about the uh, issues that Adventists are talking about in terms of leadership and in terms of the possible futures of this global community. I've uh, brought together folks from around the world and I'm honored to be joined by each one. I'll introduce Dr. Christy Chuishan Chow, who is the author of this book, a fantastic read, uh, published by University of Notre Dame Press. Uh, it's called Schism. It's uh, the subtitle is Seventh-day Adventism and Post-Denominational China. And Dr. Chow just completed her doctorate in religion and society from Princeton Theological Seminary. She's originally from Hong Kong. And I'm so honored that you would uh, join us today. We're going to go around the circle and also define Adventism as you see it in one word. So welcome, Dr. Chow. Thank you for having me in this wonderful conversation. So to answer your question, I think for me, after uh, going through the doctoral training, Adventism for me is always a subject of inquiry. And I think that notion is useful for every Adventist because it keeps the dynamics that Adventism is a changing religious movement that requires efforts to understand it and to reshape it in the context of the local community. That's great. I'm excited to hear uh, more along those lines. Next, I'll introduce Kendra Arsenault, who is a graduate of the University of California, Los Angeles, and just recently received her Master's of Divinity from the Seventh-day Adventist Theological Seminary at Andrews University. She's the host of Spectrum and Kinship's Imago Gay podcast. Uh, welcome. Kendra. Thank you so much for having me. I am delighted to be here. Um, as far as what Adventism is to me, I think it's so complex because um, I think there's the idealism of what we all hope and wish Adventism could be a flexible uh, organization that is able to receive feedback and uh, be willing uh, to put their humanity in the doctrine. And I think what we see in actuality is I think Adventism is in a state of um, movement towards fundamentalism. Mm, great point. Uh, next, I am honored to introduce uh, Suduzo Blose, who's an ordained minister and um, former stewardship director and executive committee member of the KwaZulu-Natal Free State Conference in South Africa. Suduzo is working on his PhD in post-colonial critique and biblical studies at the University of KwaZulu-Natal. Thanks for joining us. Um, hi, Alex, and hi to everyone. Thanks for having me. Such a privilege and a joy to be here. For me, it is the church is a child, you know, that thinks it, it's grown. Uh, to a certain level of maturity that is beyond its experience and even its um, maturity. And, and I think that's what makes it dangerous and toxic. Uh, but also it's what keeps us within the church because we see that it's still a growing baby that will make some 
very violent mistakes. Um, and we refuse to leave and abandon the ship because one, we are incurably Adventist, but also <laughs> number two, uh, we, we, we don't want to cede it to these forces, uh, insidious forces that look to curtail its growth and, 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 and potential to become, I think, a catalyst of, of positive change in our, in, in our world. Mm. I love that metaphor of a, a growing human. Next, uh, I'm here with, it looks like Brazilian Jesus, but it's Andre Canaciro who joins us um, from Brazil. He is a master's candidate in Hebrew Bible studies at the University of Sao Paulo, and he is the editor-in-chief of Zelota which is an independent magazine that covers Adventism in Brazil. So he's also a journalist. Uh, welcome, Andre. Thank you. It's always great to be with you guys. Um, actually, I just got my master's degree, so I'm not a candidate anymore. Congratulations. Um, thanks. Well, I have to define what Adventism is for me in one word. Uh, between what is and what should be, I would say revolutionary. Hmm. Okay. Looking forward to unpacking that. Let's start talking about maybe some of the issues that you are noticing are hot topics. And Kendra, you uh, were recently at the Seventh-day Adventist Theological Seminary, which is really a crossroads of Adventism. What were some of the issues that you noticed were uh, hot topics there at the seminary? Well, it's interesting because I think there's so many different pockets in the seminary. And I myself am definitely more minded towards a practical theology. How does our theology break down into real life? And, you know, we just had two deadly shootings, right? And within 10 days of each other, one at a supermarket in Buffalo that was racially motivated and another one in Uvalde, Texas, an elementary school that I also believe had some racial motivation to it. And so in both of these contexts, what you see is like a young zealous neophyte, right, of some fundamentalist belief or community. And so for me, I think one of the biggest issues on the rise is fundamentalism. Um, I think COVID and the isolation from COVID over the last two years, I think it's really affected a lot of people's mental health and has made them susceptible to this type of thinking. And, you know, when we talk about theology or we talk about belief systems, we can't ignore psychology right? The state of a person's mind affects how a person approaches the scriptures and interprets their belief about God or the world. And so, you know, we might talk about things like black and white thinking or the black and white mindset. And it's, if you're approaching beliefs about the world about or about God from like this rigid place, then like you're predisposed to miss nuance and there's a need to fit people into predetermined categories. Like, a woman should stay at home and rear children, or marriage is only for heterosexual couples, or people are born either a boy or a girl, and there's no such thing as being transgender. Or, you know, there are ways that certain people, I think, capitalize on this type of cognitive deficiency, this rigid thinking, and it can lead to mindsets like, you know, the white race is in jeopardy, we need to do something about it, or other things that, you know, um, can, can cause violent outbursts. And so, in seminary and in the pastoral profession, I think I've seen a lot of rigid thinking, um, you know, or towards gender norms and towards an aversion towards sexual divergence. Um, and I've also observed how this rigid thinking is also tied to like a grand purpose and a desire to want to be a part of something big, right? 
And I think that's where you get a lot of this, uh, this, this search, that primal need to be a part of something grand, I think sometimes drives people to make uh, extreme decisions, especially when it's attached to wrong values or toxic community. Hmm. I like how you're drawing our attention to the connection between the psychological and the theological. Pastor Blose, you are thinking about post-colonialism in your graduate work. I would love for you to kind of tell us about the sort of issues that you noticed as a pastor, as a member of your conference executive committee, as stewardship director. What sort of tensions do you notice in the communities of Adventism that you've been around? So Alex, I'd like to, as you, I mean, so generously keep referring to my studies, <laughs> uh, draw from that, you know, post-colonial theory um, sort of teaches us to look for the insidious presence of empire, uh, and the lingering effects of colonialism and mostly coloniality, uh, which of course occupies three edifices, coloniality of power, coloniality of being, and coloniality of knowledge. And I think these are very clear and vivid within Adventism. When we, for example, we talk about coloniality of knowledge, that our Adventist theology is very still, still very much Eurocentric. And of course, uh, as pointed out earlier, uh, there's this move towards sort of like a right-wing fundamentalist uh, sort of um, influence within our our, our theology, um, and we and, and from the post-colony, right, writing back to the empire, um, we sort of receive this in a very violent manner, right, and many are are sort of oblivious to the violence uh, with which I mean that that this plays itself out in their lives. Um, through how it marginalizes minority groupings, um, and 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 yeah, and victimizes uh, so sort of like a lot of people. And then of course, you've got this coloniality of power, and some of the discussions that are happening here uh, on the colony. Uh, and of course, this is you know, South Africa is still pretty much a colony, and Africa is still pretty much a colony in so many ways. Uh, the discussions that are happening is when are we having a black president, for example? And I think we have we covered that in a in a in a in a previous conversation and we sort of like moving away from just a black president because our experience from the colony with Barack Obama, for example, uh, and, and that premature declaration that America had become a post-racial society is that just having a black face and a black representative in a office of, in a high office uh, doesn't necessarily do much in by way of transforming the material conditions of the people uh, on the ground, right? And so we are having the discussion at that level of edifice of uh, coloniality of power, in that how long will even we send representatives to the general conference who do not, who in, once they get there, pick up an American accent <laughs> uh, in more ways than just, you know, uh, articulation, but in also in their ideas and how, so then they come back and restate you know uh, gc programs to us as opposed to representing the voices of the african and interests of the african continent uh, to the general conference and then lastly of course of course um as this sort of mostly in south africa one, one of the discussions that are happening and I'll try and be brief about this is the return of land right to uh indigenous people right to stolen land and that's that's one of the big conversations that's happening in broader society and, and that is because we see that the West sort of extracts knowledge from the from 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 the continent. We are studied, right? And then these are presented in Western academies, uh, 
where people get degrees and jobs in the West, even by Africans. Uh, of course, extraction of, of material resources and wealth. And, and Africans are saying, no, no, but this is our land. Bring it back to us. Let us be in charge of what the land produces. Because precisely because we see that this extraction sort of impoverishes and sort of keeps us locked in the state of, of poverty. Great. Well, we've talked about identity already and we're getting into money and power. Dr. Chow, you uh, explore an, a really interesting case study of Adventism. Can you talk a little bit about some of the issues that people have brought up and, and what you um, have explored in thinking about how schism actually can be helpful in some ways or at least interesting? Yes, thank you for the question. So I think I want to address the, the, the very first question that you asked, which is the important issues in the China field, because I think there is a need for the administration or the GC or whatever hierarchy that is overseeing the China work to recognize that it needs contextualization. It needs in, indigenization, which means that People in the higher up level don't quite understand what is going on in China, whether they are ignorant about the political situation or whether they hear reports from, from different sources that inform their understanding. That is, there is a gap between the administration decision on how to do the China work and how the local people think about what resources and experience the high up level can share with the local congregants. So there's a need to close this gap. And I think the GC for the past year tried to address this issue, but there is insufficient in terms of the focus. So one focus I want to highlight is the theological training that it needs to address how to equip the local Chinese church to make this transition of leadership. Because in the past, the church are very much ruled by seniority and experiences. But now you are having this second tier and third tier of pastors who are coming out and then try to make the church more relevant to Chinese society. But then the kind of theological training is not sufficient to equip them. And so that is the issue that I'm concerned with because I'm an educator. But of course, in terms of the schism, the divisions in mainland China, that also tie to the training because if you don't have right training for the local pastors, then they don't have much knowledge about how Adventist church um, manage their affairs in a conventional way, but also you don't have the knowledge to adapt those categories in the local context. That, that comes back to the training as well. And so I think division or schism in mainland China, in the Chinese church, we can see it as an organic dynamic that you allow different versions of Adventism unfolded and responds to the local context. But still, we are a global family. So there is, it needs some categories to bind these different pockets of Adventist church in mainland China. And I think from a hierarchical pers pers perspective, the structure can, can definitely do a great work, but how to do it organically and respond in response to the local needs. That is a question and a challenge that the hierarchy has to think about in the long term. Thanks for drawing our attention to hierarchy. Andre, can you talk about some of the issues that you've noticed that need to be addressed in your context? Yeah, um, 
as you are were as you all were talking, I was identifying with a lot of lots of things, especially with, with you, Pastor. Uh, we are both from third. I mean, both we and Dr. Chow are from third world countries, but uh, we, we we are still in a deep de dependence relationship with with the first worlds and. Brazil also is victim to a, a huge extractional process. Uh, is deeply dependent on other first world economies, and and that contributes a lot to keep uh, Brazilian people poor. I mean, we have uh, right now. It's I think it's twelve million unemployed here, and over a hundred million in food insecurity. And we export food, so uh, that shouldn't happen, but uh, th that's not the case. And I think that the, the process that transfers wealth from Brazil to the first world is also mirrored in the church's organization, especially here. We are deeply hier hierarchical. Uh, I've been writing a piece for uh, Spectrum about uh, how... how has the church organization uh, worked in, in South America? And it works in a way that the, the South American Division, which is a representative of the General Conference, has the overall control of the territory. Um, almost no union conferences, lots of union missions, uh, presidential elections, for union conferences being done in weird roundabout ways. Um, and all that is reflected in the local church. Since these administrators, they live in the hallways of the conferences and the divisions in the unions, they think that the interests of God and of the church is the same as the interests of the church as an institution, as a multi-billion, multinational corporation. Well, that's helpful to get this perspective. I Let's jump in and just talk about, I think, a, an issue that emerged, and that's this idea of, of power and control. Maybe, Kendra, if you wouldn't mind expanding upon this, this idea of the way the church is oppressive to its members. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question, and I've so enjoyed all the uh, input from everybody, such big thinkers, and I love this. Um, I think currently the way that the church is structured, uh, I think it has lost a lot of value. I was talking to a friend the other day who's becoming a pastor, and we were talking about how, you know, in a lot of ways, the administration has has stripped pastors of what we kind of advertise them to be. We advertise them to be these moral, uh, you know, posts in the community, standing up for what's right, calling for justice for all. But instead, what's happened is they have been stripped of that power to be autonomous, and they are now essentially just administrators, right? They are administering the policies, they are administering the beliefs of what the church official um, has deemed to be correct. And any person who strays from that or speaks uh, contrawise is going to be punished, and they're under... Um, the, the threat of losing their job. And so in that structure, you don't get a lot of feedback. And that's what I'm hearing collectively across the board is that 
people are trying to have a reciprocal relationship with the church uh, to give feedback and to say, hey, this is working, this is not working, this is oppressive, this is, uh, you know, this is uh, demeaning my dignity, and they're not listening. And so what you have essentially is you have kind of an engine of production, of church production, uh, where pastors are now the administrators of these churches, uh, the churches are reaping tithe from the community, and they're going back up to serve the engine of, you know, the church official. And I think until we begin to address some of those systemic issues that make it um, a space where we're not able to communicate with leadership, and we talk about patriarchy, a lot of times people try to stay away from that word because they think it's associated with like male bashing. But in essence, you know, it's from the word patronizing, right? It's like you think you know what's better for someone else than they know for themselves. And essentially, we have that parental relationship with the church where uh, the church, instead of being the child, like uh, Blase was saying, you know, that the members are rearing, uh, you know, the GC and whomever believe that they're the parent and they're going to be parenting their members. But the problem is, is that they're bad parents, right? <laughs> um, they're taking their kids' lunch money. Um, they're unwilling to acknowledge the diversity of their children, right? Um, they're, they're not providing them with self-determination and autonomy. And so ideally, you know, this could be a place where there's a lot of true diversity, where we, we see the richness of everyone's culture. We are getting feedback and believing that there is something to learn. Uh, but instead, what we have right now is a franchise uh, where it's this, it's the Burger King, it's the McDonald's of Adventism, and it's going to be one flavor. And they're unwilling to change the ingredients, unfortunately. And until we're willing to like get rid of the franchise version of Adventism, we're going to continue to run into these same problems. Uh, I want to hear Dr. Chow's thoughts on this idea of the franchising of Adventism. Yes, thank you for the question. And I think it's very interesting to hear Kendra's um, description of the dynamic that she experienced in her context. Because I kept thinking that when I, when I did research on the, the divisive forces in mainland China, we are talking about these divisive forces is not generated from the top down, from the GC or the, the union and then to the local context. We're talking about organically happening in mainland China. So it gets us to think that is there something wrong in Adventism? That organically there is a dynamic that people would tend to take a fundamentalist thinking to just limit other voices even if you don't have the hierarchy or official hierarchy at all. So it gets us to think about the essence of Adventism, right? That even without an official hierarchy, the division limits of Adventist vision, uh, not allowing a different interpretation of the Adventist faith still happened on the ground. And so that makes me to think that even China is organizationally, officially not connected to the GC. And still there is this dynamics from the hierarchy that, that try to draw the, the churches back to some version of Adventism that is allowed in the common sense. And that happens to the book that I, um, that happened to the research that I, I, I did. And, uh, and so I think for, for 
for a more forward-thinking version of Adventism, I agree with Kendra that there must be something done on the ground and also in the hierarchy that allows diversity, that people wouldn't be punished by saying what they think is right or wrong. And um, I like the idea that Adventism is a dynamic movement, that you have a spectrum that allows different voices and opinions that people feel, feel free and safe to say what they think without receiving punishment at all um, at different level, whether you, 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 you say something bad about the hierarchy or you say something good about the local church. That kind of freedom is, is what Adventism needs in order to move forward. Mm. You know, you talked about that freedom to sort of speak one's mind. Uh, Andre, um, really quickly here, you know, we've brought up this idea of, um, of paternalism. You know, as you're watching the GC session, what sort of things are you going to be looking for? So things we are paying a lot of attention, any drive towards uh, hierarchization or centralization in the institution. Um, it worries us because we are already deeply centralized and hierarchical down here. Um, and at, on that line, any South American leader that gets elected <laughs> uh, makes us at least initially concerned because we know from where he's from and what, what things are like down here. So we are always concerned that South American leaders might try to make um, general conference more hierarchical or more centralized. Um, that's a, a thing we'll be paying a lot of attention in the election process, the nomination, nominating committee, everything. Um, we're also uh, looking forward to the discussion on the Ellen White statement um, because as you probably uh, imagine, Ellen White is the fourth person of the Trinity down here. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> uh, and, and it's really uh, concerning that it, she, while she's that important, she's also um, victim to some hard manipulation from part of our publishing house monopoly. Ellen White is a pivotal point in that and all, all, all our drive towards fundamentalism and um, and uh, inerrancy and promoting uh, reactionary ideologies uh, subtly um, Ellen White is a key part in that. Let's turn our attention to the question of leadership here as we uh, wrap up. So um, 39 years is a long time for uh, Wilson's to uh, control Adventism. I'd love for you to talk about um, what would be important in your context to see in a future leader in Adventism. For me, I think I would like the next leader to be um, someone who is not a rigid thinker. Um, I think a person who has 
a person probably who's not from a European country, right, to begin to uh, decolonialize and uh, de-Americanize the export of what Adventism has become. Uh, someone who's a scholar who actually thinks critically and deeply about these issues and is willing to get feedback, someone who is strong enough to be able to weather the kind of criticism that's going to come from the fundamentalist uh, camp uh, by adopting those types of changes. But if you're not willing to be a leader for everyone, um, then you shouldn't be a leader. And if you're also not someone who is taking care of their mental health, who has a counselor, who has accountability, who has made themselves accountable to the people, um, not a prince, not a king, not someone who was removed and protected, but someone who is willing uh, to take on the burden of trying to solve uh, the issues that people are raising, which has a lot to do with autonomy and self-determination and empowerment. And, um, and if, if they're not willing to do that, then I don't think, I think that position ultimately might best be served to be dissolved altogether. Hmm. Dr. Chow. I think I totally agree with what Kendra and Andra said, which is the empowering the local community and also the, the leadership has to be diversified. But adding on those good points, I would like to add that for the leadership of the China work, we are not just talking about the, G, the GC president. We are talking about committee member who oversee the China work. And those members, those the election of those members are very important, but those elections doesn't happen in the session. It happened after the session. And then and then people will 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 not pay much attention to those elections at all. But I, I would think that I would appreciate a leadership of that kind of um special committee overseeing the China work, who are first of all China specialists scholar have the ability to work from the bottom up not from the top down and then think scholarly as andra say because if you take a scholarly approach you will read you will study you will not allow yourself to be ignorant to what is happening on the field and that's what 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 i i would hope for uh the committee of leading the china work that kind of personnel to be in place mm. Great. Thank you so much for these perspectives. I really enjoyed talking with all of you and I'm looking forward to talking with you uh, as we start to see what happens at the general conference session. Thank you so much. Thank you.